If you're able, would you remain standing? And we're going to read verses 1 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3 as we return to our series on 1 John after a couple months away from it. So the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. This is the word of our Lord, 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who, is, who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. John really gives us to, to us straight in this passage. There's no beating around the bush. There's no complicating things. It's black and white. He says, if you obey God, then you actually believe in him. Your life, the way you do things, the way you relate to the scriptures, the way you relate to one another, if that is in submission to the Bible, that means that the faith you claim to have is actually genuine. John, by the time he writes this letter, the Apostle John is about 80 years old. He has no time for playing around anymore. He's not interested in small talk. He goes directly to the point. You don't obey God, then you don't believe him. It's as simple as that. John clearly teaches that the whole world falls under two groups, two families. Either the family of God or the family of Satan. He says that clearly in verse 10 and in verse 8. There's the, only these two groups, there, and the distinguishing characteristic between the family of God and the family of Satan is how they relate to the Word of God. Do they obey God, or do, do they not obey God? Now, we've been gone from 1 John for two months at least, since, since November, with our Christmas series and a humility series and, and a couple sermons on the Psalms. So after this break, I think we need to remind ourselves of a few things 
about 1 John that are very important for our overall understanding of this letter. That if you don't keep in the back of our minds what's going on here in 1 John and why it was written, we're going to have a hard time understanding why John says things the way he does. First thing I want us, uh, want us to remember, to be reminded of, is that the Apostle John wrote this letter with full apostolic authority under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what we have in front of us is the very word of God, infallible, authoritative, and life-giving. It's good to remind us of that when we open our Bible. God is speaking to us in an infallible, perfect, and powerful way every time we open the Bible. And that's what John is doing to us here in 1 John. Sadly, it's important for us to keep in the back of our minds that, that the Apostle John originally wrote this letter as a concerned pastor for a church or perhaps a group of churches that had been influenced by bad theology. He was concerned about what they were being taught, what they were buying into. Sadly, people who at one point had been part of the church are now teaching damnable heresy. A heresy is a departure from what is right. And a damnable heresy is one that if you believe in it, you're going to go to hell. And that's the kind of thing that was being taught by this group of people who were part of the, who at one point were part of the church, but now have rebelled against uh, the teachings of the apostle. And at least some in the church were listening to them, to the point that John thought that it would be important to spend the time writing this letter. And the false teaching had to do with two areas. The first area concerned the person of Christ, concerned who Christ is. The false teachers did not like the idea that the Messiah has a physical body like ours because they were influenced by other philosophies that were prevalent at the time that taught that, that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. That's not what the Bible teaches. But because they believed that, they thought, how can God take upon himself what is material, what's physical? That has to be bad. So they taught that Christ could not have had a body like ours. And they would get around the teaching of the scriptures by either saying that somehow Jesus and Christ were two different entities, that the Christ who is divine came upon the Jesus who is human at some point and then left him, or that Jesus Christ was just an apparition. A ghost, a hologram that wasn't really a physical person. And John says, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus was. John teaches that unless we have a whole Jesus Christ, who is both fully man and fully God, we don't have a Savior at all. You leave either side out, you don't have a Savior anymore. And you don't have any hope anymore because now you have to stand on your own before God without somebody pleading, pleading for you. The modern struggle is no longer with the fact that Jesus was fully human. The modern struggle tends to be with the fact that Jesus is fully God. That tends to be the attack of, of, of liberals and also the attack of cults in our days. But what John teaches here stands Either you have the whole Christ, fully man and fully God, or you have no Savior at all. 
Anything less than what the Bible teaches concerning Christ is not going to deal with your sins. Because Christ needed to be fully human in order to obey God as a human. Something that we miss often is that the reason why Christ lived like one of us is so that he could do the very things that you and I have failed to do. Knowing that, the very things that Adam, the first man, failed to do. And in obeying God's law perfectly as a man, he secured that obedience for us. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father sees you in light of that obedience of Christ. And he says, because my son, as a human, obeyed me perfectly, I'm going to count you as perfect in my sight. But he also needed to be human to die the death that you and I as sinners deserved. Separation from the Father. He had to be one of us. He had to be A sacrifice cannot be different than the one that he's being sacrificed for. It has to be the same kind. So he needed to be human in order to die for us. But at the same time, he needed to be God. Because only God can take the infinite wrath of God upon him in a limited amount of time. Christ paid for the sins of his people on the cross. Infinite payment. And in order to pay for infinity in a limited amount of time, you have to be infinite yourself. So you take the God part, you take the human part, you don't have a Savior that works anymore. That's why John is so strong in what he says here. Now, if you're not clear why the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ must be fully man and fully God, come and talk to me afterwards. Don't leave here today without understanding why that is necessary. So that's the first thing that John is dealing with in First, in, in first John. In Christ is both man and God in one person, the perfect Savior. The second heresy, the second teaching that concerned John it had to do with the Christian's response to his or her own faith. What happens after you believe in Jesus Christ? What do you do with that? How do you live it out? The false teachers thought that there was no place for obedience in the life of the Christian. That's believe in Jesus and live whatever you want to do. You don't have to relate to the Word of God. You don't have to obey God. You just do whatever you want. They taught that as long as a person held on to a special kind of knowledge, a knowledge that only the false teachers had, and for a small payment they could give to you, what you did in life didn't matter. Sin didn't matter. And this special knowledge was only available through these special teachers and was not found anywhere else in the Bible. So if somebody says that to you today, beware. Somebody says, I found something new in the Bible. Or God told me something that's not in the Bible. Run. Run fast away from that person because he's about to lie to you. Okay? So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says there is no secret knowledge outside of the Scriptures, and that obedience to the Word of God is the identifying characteristic of the Christian. That's that's who we are. We are people who follow Christ. We are people who obey Christ. These two teachings were the basic elements of the earliest of of, of Christian heresies, something called Gnosticism. Not that important, but you're going to hear that word thrown around a lot today. These two themes, Christ and obedience, dominate the entire letter. 
And John weaves them together throughout the letter to the point that he repeats himself in different ways several times, which makes it a nightmare to try to outline 1 John. Because he just is, is, is weaving these two things together throughout the, the epistle. A while ago when we first began, uh, Jacob Norton said, Pastor, seems like you're preaching the same sermon every week. I said, yeah, because that's what First John is doing. Is he's repeating himself. Uh, and he, he meant in a nice way. He wasn't accusing me of, uh, say, don't move, not moving on and so on. But that's because John is doing just that in First John. He's repeating himself because this is such an important thing. So what's John telling us? That instead of looking for some elusive, secret knowledge in order to know whether you are a Christian... John provides three objective tests that are not secret at all, and they're not new either. You find them throughout the apostolic teaching, throughout the New Testament. It says, do you want to know that you know that you're a Christian? Do you want to know that you know that your faith is real? Do you believe all that the Bible teaches concerning Christ? Do you believe in the whole Christ? Well, if you, yes, that's, your faith is genuine. Do you obey God by obeying what He tells you in His Word? Now, this obedience is not a perfect obedience. It is a repentant obedience that turns away from sin and turns to God through Jesus Christ. This is a growing obedience. This is a willful obedience. Are you intentionally seeking to obey God through His Word? Well, that's a sign of a genuine faith. And thirdly, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's a sign of a genuine faith in Christ. Don't, don't be looking for a secret. Don't be looking for that new snake oil of religion. Do you believe the whole Christ? Do you obey His word? Do you love His people? If you can say yes to all these things, then your faith is genuine. And our passage today includes all three of these elements. But it focuses on the Christian's response of obedience to the gospel. John opens the chapter with Christ and His work on our behalf in verses 1 and 2. Then because of who Christ is and what He has done for us, we respond in obedience in verses 3 to the first half of verse 10. And that obedience will show itself in love for the brethren, the last part of verse 10. So now that we have these things fresh in our minds, we are ready to consider the most important of, of questions that this passage puts before us. To which family do you belong? To which family do you belong? Satan's or God's? Why do you obey Christ? Why you as a believer obey Christ, according to this passage? Well, we obey Christ because Christ brought us to spiritual life in His first coming. And will bring us to perfect physical life in His second coming. Look what He says again in verses 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed that what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Through Jesus Christ... We have been adopted as children of God. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, the Father says, this is my child. 
That's the kind of love the Father has given to us, the kind of love that brings us into his family and gives us all the rights of the sons of God, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We have a new life as part of the new family. We've been recreated. We're no longer Smith or Jones. We're now Christians. All by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. But what Christ is doing for us doesn't stop in the here and now. We will be raised physically to be like Him. He tells that in verse 2. Holy and eternal, everlasting. So Christ has delivered us spiritually and He's going to deliver us physically as well. And because of that, because we have this great hope of the resurrection, we obey God in verses 3 through 10. So the hope of the resurrection, the fact that we are the children of God and he's come, Christ is coming back for us, pushes us to live holy lives now. Look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he's pure. So to, to live a pure life is to live a life of obedience to the Lord. And notice that another motivation is the very character of Christ. You are a child of God, or you're a brother of Christ. He is your Lord, he is your Savior, and He Himself is pure. He Himself is holy, and we are united to Him, so we too live a pure life. And that's one of the reasons for the, that test of obedience. Remember I said that three tests that John gives us? What do you believe concerning Christ? Do you obey the Word of God? Why? Why is that a question that we're asked as Christians? Well, you believe in Christ, you become like Him. There's no option. You believe in Christ, the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, you become like Him. So if you are nothing like Him, then there is no reason to think that your faith is genuine. If there's no resemblance of who Christ is in you, And I'm not talking about physically. There's somebody that tried to argue before the service that beards were normative because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob wore them. So I'm not talking about that. Those of us who can't grow a beard are very thankful that that's not normative. Otherwise, we would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That's not. So to be like Christ has nothing to do with how we look physically. But are we resembling Him in love? Are we resembling Him in meekness? Are we resembling Him in kindness and compassion, in patience, in self-control? If there's nothing of that in our lives, how can we be in Him? How He can be in us? And John helps us to understand what sin is. What is it that, uh, that uh, causes us to be unlike Christ so that we can avoid it? Look at verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God by transgressing God's law. And the law of God is not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole of the Bible. To use the answer of question 14 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism, sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Notice that sin is objectively defined. Sin is lack of submission to what God says in His Word. That's what sin is. Sin is not what I think is sin. Sin is not what you think is sin. Sin is not what society thinks is sin. Sin is lack of submission to the Word of God. Calvin says that sin arises from a contempt 
of God, Boyce says that sin is simply the desire to have my own way. It is important that we get this. It's important that we get that sin is objectively defined. This is not an amorphous, undefined thing. The Bible tells us what sin is. And I think this is the most difficult question we ask during the membership interview process. Just because of the, the way that people look puzzled when we like. We ask, how do you know what sin is? And we see this, we see the blood draining from people's face. <laughs> Unless you're Charlotte, because you just gave answer for a question 14 of the catechism. Um, for some reason, people get stomped by this question. But all that we're looking for is that the person knows that the Bible tells us what sin is. Not the elders of the church, not the world, not our own opinions, but the Bible tells us what sin is. Now, why is John so insistent on our purity? He says that if you are in Christ, you're pure, for he is pure. You're going to live holy, holy lives because you are in him. Why is he so insistent on our purity? Well, because Jesus Christ has taken away the guilt and the power of sin over us. Look at verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, For sin shall, have, shall not have dominion over you anymore. So Christ has taken the power of sin over us. And you're united to Christ. Christ has done that for us. We're not bound to that anymore. We've been freed from the dominion of sin. John Calvin again says, They who cease not to sin render void the benefits derived from Christ since he came to destroy the reigning power of sin. And this verse is important for this chapter here, for this passage, because without it, the rest of the passage may leave a bit of a self-righteous, moralistic taste in the mouth of the reader. This verse reminds us that what John is saying is only true because what Christ has done for us. The only reason we can obey God is because Christ has obeyed God before us. And he has redeemed us. He's given a new heart, a heart in which the love of God is written. A heart that is now able to say, I'll follow you. A heart that believes and is dominated by the Spirit of God. And since Christ has taken away the power of sin... It is preposterous of one who is united to him to live as if he or she was under the dominion of sin. And that's why John says in the second half of verse 8, um, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So because of our union with Christ, our lives are marked by obedience, not constant sinning. Look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, does that shock you? Does that statement shock you? In, our, in the New King James translation says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, if you are alive, you have a pulse, you're going to understand that you sin. Right? And if you say you don't sin, you're a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. That's what John says in chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10. So I'm just quoting him. Not uh, uh, So what is he saying here? Well, John is not teaching that the believer can become morally perfect in this life, the idea of sinless perfection. 
since he already said in chapter 1 that anyone who claims not to sin at all is a liar. John is referring to patterns of life, not to individual occasions of sin. He is referring to what some have called the film of your life, the movie of your life, not the snapshot of a particular moment. Is your life marked by sin or by obedience? If you're going to play your life here, would it be more a life that characterizes Christ's presence in it? Or it would be more a life that characterizes his absence? And the, the tense of the verbs in the original language requires this interpretation. John goes out of his way to state every verb in a tense that indicates continued and repeated action. Are you repeatedly marked by sin? Or are you repeatedly marked by obedience? Is your life summarized by sin or summarized by obedience? F.F. F. Bruce, who is a, a, a great New Testament scholar of the mid-1900s, said, Fellowship with the, with the sinless one and indulgence in sin are contradictions in terms. So when, when, when John says in verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. So whoever is in Christ is not marked by continual sin in his or her life, not by absolute perfection. In my notes, I had a, a digression at this point, a planned digression. Can you imagine that? A planned digression in my notes, but we're not going to go there today because the tyranny of the clock is uh, ruling over us. Notice John's tenderness and love toward them as he addresses this idea of obedience. Look at verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He addresses them as little children. That's his favorite title for this church, little children. He's not writing these things because he wants to control them or have them conform to some capricious set of rules. He is, he is writing these things to them, and God has preserved them for us because he loves us and is best for us. So when the Bible says don't sin, it's not just trying to come up with some set of rules that are detrimental to you, that's going to make your life miserable. He's not trying, the Bible is not trying to limit us in any way. God is not trying to limit us in any way. He's trying to free us to be what we have been created and recreated to be and do. That's what he's doing here when he says obey Christ, because that's, that's who you are. You are the type of person who obeys Christ. And there's no more plain way to say it than what John says in, in verse 7. The righteous person does what is right, because Christ, who is righteous, does what is right. The word righteous seems to be so mysterious, but it just means doing what is right. That's what it is. Righteous means doing what is right. There's no mismatch between the inner person and what he or she does. If he's righteous, if God has declared him or her righteous because of Christ, guess what? They're going to do what is right. There's no contradiction between the heart and the actions. But we can easily deceive ourselves about, about that. And that's why John urges us not to be deceived, to get it this right. 
you know, the, the false teacher, the Gnostic teachers, insisted that the righteous was the enlightened ones who received a secret knowledge from these teachers apart from the apostolic teaching. John says that it's way simpler than that. The righteous is the one who does what is right as defined by the law of God. Remember he said the sin is the transgression of the law of God, so what is right is also defined by the law of God. Doing is the best test of being. That's what John Stott says. And John continues in verse 8 where he says, A life characterized by sin is consistent not with faith in Christ, but with being a child of the devil. Look at verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Here again, we see that John is talking about the continual practice of sin. Satan is sinning. Uh, the New King James says, has sinned, but it's literally is sinning from the beginning. There's not a moment in which Satan's life is not characterized by sin. And because that's a characteristic of Satan, then those that are Christ's are not going to do that. And the Christian, in verse 9, plain old, cannot continually live a life of sin because the Spirit lives in him. Look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, the seed there, I believe, the Spirit, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The Spirit of God is in him, according to the New Testament. Remember, New Covenant. Remember what God promised in the New Covenant? That he's going to give you a new heart, and he's going to put his Spirit within you so that you can follow him. That's what's going on with us as we follow Christ. The Christian can backslide, and live a life of sin for a while, but he will not he or she will never be able to continue in that sin forever. And it may be even be a periodical struggle where you find yourself in the despair of sin and the throes of sin, and then you come out of that. But it will not be correct your life will not be characterized. The movie of your life from begin to end is not going to be characterized by the works of Satan. Paul says that too. Remember what he says in Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you, what is he going to do? He's going to complete it. He's not going to leave it anything undone. So to which family do you belong? That's the question that verse 10 begs. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Which, to which family do you belong? The children of God obey him. The children of Satan don't. Now, why is it so hard to obey God if it is so simple? Let me finish with a four, four answers to that question. Are we, are we agreed that sometimes it's really hard to obey God? If you say... Nope, it's always super easy. <laughs> you're either the second coming of Jesus Christ or you have no idea what it is to, to follow, follow Christ. So why is it that's so hard to obey God if it's so simple? Answer number one. Simple is not the same as easy. Right? So because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy for us to do. Secondly, I think we have bought into the idea that we can't help but sin. We bought into this idea that that's who we are, and that's what we're going to do, and that's not Christianity. That's 
being a follower of Eeyore. Everything is always bad. There's nothing I can do but sin. That's not how the Bible describes the believer. There's certainly a struggle that can be very great at times, but it doesn't have to result in defeat. And, and how we think of ourselves is important. Because we think, we think of ourselves as people that cannot do anything but sin. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to sin. But we think of ourselves as people who struggle with sin, but Christ has removed the dominion of sin over us. Then that struggle does not have to result in defeat. And remember, the struggle is not sin. The struggle is actually the opposite. If you're struggling with it, it means that you're not giving in to it. Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 12 through 14, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's not how we have to live. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit are you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Third answer. Why is it so hard to obey God if it is so simple? We have allowed the doctrine of justification. That's the doctrine that teaches that by faith in Christ, we are declared righteous before God because of the work and death of Christ and nothing because of us. God doesn't accept us because we are so good, such good people. We're not good little boys and girls that God says, ah, shucks. I'm going to walk. No, we are sinners apart from Christ. And because of him, he declares us to be perfect, not because of ourselves. But we have allowed the doctrine of justification to swallow up the doctrine of sanctification. In justification, we are completely passive. It's just our faith in Christ. To say otherwise is really to lose the gospel. But having been justified, we work hard as the Spirit of, as the Spirit of God works in us to obey God. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? He says, work out your salvation, that is your sanctification, with fear and trembling. Work out. Do the work. Why? Because it is God who is working you to do and to will of His good pleasure. We work because God is working in us. The fourth answer why it's so difficult is that we have bought into the fall, a false notion of grace. I was counseling somebody once. Somebody from another church was brought by a friend having struggled with her husband. And I was trying to help her from the scriptures to love her husband and so on. She told me, I don't have to love my husband. I don't have to do loving acts towards my husband because I don't feel like I love him. And to do loving acts to him is to be a hypocrite. I have to wait till God gives him the grace so that I can feel like I love him in order to behave as if I love him. That is bogus. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And I think we've, some, we've bought into that false notion, the notion that God's grace is something that we passively receive until we feel like obeying. And then if we don't feel like obeying, we don't have to, because God hasn't zapped us. If you're getting zapped, check your neck. Somebody may put a collar around you and it's pushing a button and zapping you, because that's not how God works. Our feeling becomes the deciding factor in obedience, not the grace of God. And yet, how many times does Christ have to die in order for the grace of heaven to be available to you? Does he have to die again in order for you to find the grace to obey him? Are you that special? That the death of God the Son, the, de the death of the God-man on the cross, is not enough? Fourthly, 
I think this is difficult because we don't appreciate and avail ourselves of the means that God's given us to receive His grace in order to grow in obedience. The reading, and especially the preaching of the Word of God, is not considered to be as powerful as God has appointed to be in our lives. We neglect reading the Bible. We neglect being in church every time the Word is preached. And then we wonder, why is it that I'm struggling with sin? We don't approach the sacrament, especially Lord's Supper, with the seriousness and faith to be fed by it. We, prayer is not a commitment that we are willing to keep. We don't cultivate the fellowship of the saints and the public worship of God with one another. We try to live in an island, and then we wonder, why is it I'm struggling with sin? God has given these, these ordinary means to give you grace, to give us grace to go. So what's the solution? We go back to John's simplicity. Faith in Christ and obedience to His Word. And that's it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And we pray that the, the foolishness, foolishness of the message preached would reach our hearts and point us to Christ. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.